welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 69. Happy New Year. I'm Nick Dixon, here with Toby Young, 2024 edition. Coming up, Rishi's election chances, Trump's ballot madness, and Sadiq Khan goes full Sadiq Khan at New Year's Eve, plus loads more. And of course, peak woke. But Toby, Happy New Year to you. I thought we'd start with, I don't know, some sort of predictions or resolutions for the new year do you have any new year's resolutions yeah i've got um a couple um uh it's the, my usual new year's resolutions i i want to drink less and eat less so i, I my weight was at quite a good level I, I was almost down to 10 and a half stone towards the end of last year but obviously um i put on quite a bit over christmas i i, I don't actually dare weigh myself because i know i'll be really depressed if it's if, if i've put on quite a lot of weight so i'm just gonna try and lose a bit of weight now and then weigh myself maybe at the end of January to see how I've got on and see how much further I need to to go. Um, Ten and a half is wild. That's like a it's like a child's weight. I mean, <laughs> I'm down at 12 and a half, which is an achievement because I am taller and very muscular, but I, I'm, I'm aiming for 12. So another, I got 12.6 today. So yeah, 12 will be good for me, but you're tucking 10 and a half. I, I, 10 and a half is always a bit of a dream. I've never managed, I haven't managed to achieve that in the past. Um, well, since I was a child, um, but uh, <laughs> I, I did, I got down to about, you know, 10 stone nine. So I was two pounds off at one point when I was at my li- very lightest last year. 2008, I was an under 10 stone on a ridiculous diet of no sugar, no dairy, no gluten, basically no food. I was incredibly lean. My skin looked amazing, felt amazing, but I was I went completely mental. And then I just binged on sugar for about whatever, however many years it is since 2008, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of decades or something. Um, go on. The, the drinking. I, I, I want to drink less as well. Um, and I, I did manage to, I set myself the target at the beginning of 2023 of um, not drinking for three days a week, but I didn't sort of measure it each week. Rather, I sort of thought, can I, can I make sure I go, you know, 154 days or something, uh, so it was, it was, it was a, something like that, um, without 156 days without drinking over the course of the year. And I did manage to hit that target. Um, but of course, the problem with that is that on the days you allow yourself to drink, you have a tendency to compensate for those days in which you were abstaining, <laughs> me in particular. It's like it, my natural rebelliousness means that I treat the NHS app that I use to try and monitor my drinking like a kind of f- finger wagging scold. And on the days when I think I can just drink as much as I like because it's one of the days I'm permitted to drink. I think, oh, finger in the eye to you, NHS app, and just you know, <laughs> get 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 horribly drunk. Um, uh, so yeah. I think probably a better strategy this year, rather than go up from three days a week to four days a week, which I imagine would just exacerbate the binging problem. Um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna try and limit myself to a hundred bottles of wine over the course of the year. And uh, and I'm hoping that means that I'll confine myself to good wine. I mean, the real problem kicks in when I'm at a party and, you know, the only thing available is gut rot and I'll sort of overdo that and really regret it the next day. Um, and uh, hopefully if, I, if I'm limiting myself to just 100 bottles a year, that will deter me from drinking really bad wine, which is really bad for you, um, uh, particularly in excess at parties. Uh, so that's my plan. I don't know whether I'll succeed. One downside I see, Nick, is that 
if I'm ever invited to a dinner party, which is pretty infrequently these days, um, I'll probably have to inspect the the label of the wine the host is serving to see whether it's quota worthy. You know, is it is it Grand Cru? No, sorry, I'll stick with the water. Thank you. And, and you would do that as well with your Toby Autism. You would say, "Can oh, I just oh. can I see that?" No, no, this is not good enough to to qualify for my hundred bottles a year. <laughs> exactly, is, that's what exactly. you're saying. It's not even worth wasting. It's not worth wasting a bottle. And I, and I did think to myself, "What?" what there's no necessity to do that. I, I could just pretend to be teetotal, but you know, I feel like that would be, you know, dishonest, and dishonest misleading, yeah. and also, in, in some ways, I think of that as being more embarrassing than being an incredible wine snob and rude to my host. No, no, the other one's yeah. definitely ruder and worse. But um, I, I see you sort of labelling the the hundred at the start of the year. Just have a hundred lined up, and they're all like numbered and just hit, getting through them gradually. How will you record it, or will it be more you just note it down that you've had a good? I think I'll put. Yeah, I I think I'll probably just note it down. I'll note down. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll tick them off. You know, I'll probably count them in blocks of five. Um, <laughs> see how maybe we should do a whole Substack on this, a bit like your QPR blog, a hundred yeah. bottles of wine with Toby Young, and you just go through what each one you had. That's starts a off a idea. kind of connoisseur's guide, ends just a kind of sad tale of a man trying to drink 10 bottles of wine before the year ends, like just, <laughs> or going over it in about february i don't know which yeah, i don't know i suppose yeah you could do it as a substack it could be you know a hundred substack posts over the course of the year and i could describe each bottle i'd drunk and also An alcoholic's well, journey with toby <laughs> <laughs> probably get more, uh, more 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 viewers than my uh qpr substack qpr which is not <laughs> hard um, very low bar yeah i'm probably not helping you either toby because when we both get together we tend to both go quite hard on the drinking because i'm just someone who does everything you know go hard or go home is my thing so and then i yeah. i drank a lot of the we drank a lot of the new at the weekly skeptic live and then there was a bumming gb news party where it was free drinks so i was just straight in with the doubles just just smashing through the, as many doubles as I could before it, the free drinks ended. I, I kept it together pretty well. People said they didn't realize I was even very drunk or that I was very angry, <laughs> which is great because <laughs> I was both. But um, they, they couldn't tell, so I held it together. The problem was I got ill immediately after, and then my life's gone very bad since then. We did the last Weekly Skeptic. I was ill. So I, I had such a bad hangover, I didn't realize I was actually ill. But then the left side of my face swelled up, this lump. And I was going, why have I got a lump? And I'm not even ill. So then I panicked. And when I got it scanned, but then I started to, then they said it's lymph nodes. And then I started to feel ill, which was kind of a relief that I wasn't dying, but I was then really ill for all of Christmas. And then my whole face swelled up. My left eye swelled up like I've been in a boxing match. I looked horrific. And I spent all Christmas just at home being ill. But it has made me think maybe I won't drink either. I don't really want to drink. I might just quit drinking again. The yeah, problem I, is if I have loads of dates, it might be a bit lame. I'm yeah. I'm I'm well. That probably won't be a problem. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm definitely doing dry January. Um, uh, so uh, I don't have to make a decision about what approach to adopt until uh, until the end of the month. Anyway, um, and I've so you've got about to pack it. in the wine starting from February. Yes, well, I've got I've got to think about a way to moderate my drinking. Uh, unlike you, people can tell when I've had too much to drink. Um, not least because I become almost insensible. Um, uh, probably one of the low points of the year for me was um, being poured into a taxi by a good Samaritan, um, a reformed alcoholic actually, um, at the conclusion of a party at Unheard, and falling asleep in the back of the Uber on the way home, and the Uber driver knocking on the door and asking for help 
to get me from the Uber to my house and my wife sending out two of my sons who had to support me, one on each arm. That was, I haven't heard the end of that, as you can imagine. Um, So uh, that is a shocker. That's very undignified. I don't want a repeat of that if I can possibly help it in 2024. You've been known to, well, I won't say that maybe, but yeah, I mean, I remember we went out once and you asked me if I was in the venue that we'd both been in and we'd talked extensively. And you did you even, did you go to the venue? You didn't even know that I'd been there. (laughs) I'd been there with you for like a number of hours, <laughs> quite, quite disturbing. And you lost your phone. So yeah, a bit of a, a bit of an issue to address there, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. What do I know? I mean, my issue to address is, is just my mental health because I've just been so depressed over Christmas. And then it's just been lurching between different health anxieties. There was a lump in my face. Now I'm, yesterday the makeup artist said, you've got some weird skin thing here. So now I think I've got skin cancer again, which I have actually had once. So now I've got to spend the next few days in terror about that and then or longer if they say it is and if it's not health anxiety is like a life ruining thing i've not managed to crack it and i've just been so depressed i've been alone over christmas and new year just thinking what is the point it's so funny we had so many achievements we had 1.2 million podcast downloads in 2023 we had there's really two really successful live shows you know and we could could have done way more and the last one went incredibly well you know i got a rate my contact got improved at work i lost a stone got some good clothes, did loads, so many great things, but none of it has moved the dial. I'm just still, just just a a total sense of emptiness, total hopelessness, interspersed with with health panic. So that's my life at the moment. I just, it's completely bleak. Well, I don't know she can say to that, is there really? I I did invite you to join me at my mother-in-law's over Christmas, but um, it it wasn't that far away from where you are now. But uh, yeah, I think you were I was just ill. I just did nothing. And I thought it'd be unfair to go there and not see my own family. I saw my mum and dad briefly, and I didn't even go to my brother's house. I just stayed at home ill. Yeah, I know. Sometimes people invite me to things, and I don't go. I don't know what's wrong with me, Toby. I mean, you just work so that you don't have to think about anything. Yeah, I, I get, I do get, I do feel slightly melancholic over the holidays, and it, it always takes me a while to realise it's because I'm not producing my usual kind of nine to twelve hours a day of kind of hard yeah. labour, and I just not working just makes me unhappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Work does help me a bit and being productive, but I don't know. I, when I was younger, at least I had hope. When you're a little older, I just have no hope in in any any regard, really. And it's quite bad. So, yeah. But I'm too scared to kill myself because I, I think, what if I mess it up? And then I, you know, was like permanently injured or something. And for someone with health anxiety, that would be far worse. So if anything happens to me, it is still the Matrix. I would never do anything. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. It will, be, it will be a Matrix attack. I would never, as Andrew Tate and Elon Musk have said, I would never kill myself. For me, it's just because I'm scared to. I think I would if it wasn't for that, because I just, I don't know, I just have absolutely no hope in my life. Anyway, do you want to do some topics? See, of course, if, 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 you were, if, you, if, you, if you were if you were a Canadian citizen, this you might be a candidate for assisted dying. Another, another oh, yeah. really good reason um, to oppose that particular uh, Yeah, I'd be uh, getting leaflets now. Yeah, yeah, that is really scary, isn't it, and weird. Yeah, yeah. That's just how I felt over Christmas. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be better soon, I don't know. I just don't know what's wrong with me, but... um. Anyway, any predictions for 2024 in the uh, political world or in the culture? Yeah, I think, well, uh, one of the interesting things about 2024 is there are going to be um, a bumper number of elections. I mean, something like half the world's population will be affected by elections taking place in 2024. I don't even know if there's a historical precedent for that number 
of elections, that degree of electoral activity. Um, and so, of course, we've got elections in the United States, uh, elections in the EU. We'll almost certainly have an election in the UK. There's the mayoral election coming up, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, there's an election in Mexico. I mean, there are elections taking place all over the place. And I think what one of the one of the fairly safe predictions we can make about these elections is that we're going to see a resurgence of populism. Um, uh, there already seems to be ample evidence of that happening. Um, and all the polls indicate that, you know, populist parties are going to do, you know, um, uh, better than they've ever done before. Trump likely to do better than he did in 2016, etc. I mean, the exception, of course, is the UK. But for the most part, the rest of the world is moving quite sharply to the right. Um, and I think the response of, you know, the international global elite to this resurgence of populism will be to, rather than try and engage with the argument, rather than try and make a case for their values, for globalization, for closer cooperation, for diversity, multiculturalism, open borders, etc., they'll just assume that the only reason people are rejecting their policy prescriptions, their candidates, is because they're being misinformed, led astray by bad actors. The problem will be diagnosed as the threat posed to democracy and to the integrity of elections by misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech. So they'll double down on censorship as a response, as a counter-populist measure. Um, and of course, it won't be any more effective in 2024 than it was in 2016. Um, and it, 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 you can sort of see it's almost like a sort of doom spiral, you know, um, trying to suppress um, uh, populist viewpoints on social media has the opposite of its intended effect. It's kind of Barbara Streisand effect writ large. It just boosts populist candidates, populist parties. So they then think they have to double down on the censorship, which in turn boosts the parties and the candidates even more. And it's like, where does it end? Um, but anyway, I think we're going to see a lot more censorship towards the end of 2024 and in 2025 in response to what are going to be a lot of election results in 24 that the authoritarian global elite dislikes. That seems a pretty fair prediction. Yeah, more censorship. Um, and yeah, lots of elections, as you say. And of course, it's going to be the the election for us. We'll probably get Labour. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I mean, this could be the year we get Labour and the real dystopia kicks in. Other possible predictions, they've been hinting at like a, a cyber attack. So maybe they'll do a cyber attack uh, or maybe aliens. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about aliens. Tucker Carlson's done whole interviews with people, which I haven't, I've sort of skimmed, where they basically say, yeah, aliens are real. So perhaps they'll unveil aliens officially in 2024, you know, the Pentagon or something, and we'll all have to just deal with that. Mike Cernovich had an interesting theory that we are aliens, and that's like why we struggle on this planet and have lots of problems and, you know, it's difficult to breathe, well, you know, make things like food and, you know, get things in a, an arrangement that makes us makes our lives sustainable, that we're actually the aliens. So that's an interesting theory as well. But do you think aliens will come out in 2024? Maybe. I mean... I'm a little bit sceptical of the kind of ufology that seems to kind of permeate the kind of um, darker recesses of the internet. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a complete, you know, sceptic about aliens, UFOs, um, but I, I certainly, I certainly, I'm on the sceptical end of the spectrum. Yeah, well, Cernovich said that we're all aliens and um, it was quite, quite a strange series of tweets 
Yeah, he said, some of us don't belong in our bodies. This was always the case for me, beginning at early childhood. It's one of my first memories. Even now, I don't feel in my body. And it takes great mental effort to move it about. I thought that was a strange tweet. And it started with him saying that we're all aliens on this planet. Something to think about there for 2024. But back back on this planet, um, I thought we'd look at Rishi's chances and all the Rishi-related stories that have come out this week. And one of them was that he's in secret talks, or was in secret talks, to bring back Dominic Cummings back in july there was a a meeting it was a broad discussion about politics and campaigning no job was offered a downing street source has said cummings addressed it on his ex account he said don't know why someone at number 10 blabbed about this but but he gave a brief statement and he then later said that everyone had ignored the substance of it he said if you watch media follow-up you'll see no reporting on the substance the fact that our nuclear weapons infrastructure is dangerously rotting and is tens of billions secretly in the hole with huge knock-on effects beyond its destructive effects on Ministry of Defense, which has got even worse and even more lying during the war. The entire puerile election debate will be based on fake budget numbers that will then be given to Starmer. And he goes into a bit of Dominic of Cummings language where it gets a bit complicated. But anyway, he said they ignored the substance. He was very concerned about nuclear infrastructure, pandemic defenses, obviously NHS, ECHR, which he says we should just leave. And my question is, why didn't Rishi go with this? Because apparently he's now talking about a kind of head-to-head with Starmer, pitting himself in a presidential-style debate against Starmer and thinking he'll do well in that because Starmer's a bit rubbish. But that doesn't really seem like anything. I mean, that's not going to be successful. That's not going to be enough to beat Starmer. He had all the nonsense about smoking and A-levels. Why didn't he go with Cummings, just go all in and actually, you know, sort of hail Mary because that's all he really had at this point? Yeah, I I think he's worried about the backlash it would trigger uh, within the Parliamentary Conservative Party, within his government, among senior officials. Um, I don't think he's got the stones to take as big a risk as that. Uh, And actually, in Dominic Cummings' blog post about the meeting between him, well, the two meetings between him and Rishi Sunak, one, I think, in December 2022 and one in July of last year. Um, he says that he, when when Rishi, you know, I think the, I think the deal they discussed wasn't Dominic Cummings um, publicly coming back to work at number 10. Uh, it, was, it was going to be a secret arrangement whereby Dominic Cummings was going to be on call to provide Rishi with advice regularly and also devise an election winning strategy for later this year and in return dominic wanted rishi to commit himself to addressing these uh, the most serious problems facing britain with the ones you just you just outlined interestingly nuclear weapons infrastructure not nuclear infrastructure um uh, apparently according to dominic cummings this is a much neglected um uh, part of the deep state and poses a grave existential threat to everybody, um, which is pretty alarming. I don't know much about it. He says most of it is classified. Um, so I guess he can't he can't sort of uh, flesh out what he's talking about, but it sounds pretty alarming. Um, but uh, so they discussed this secret deal. And according to so Dominic kind of um, revealed all this on his blog because he got wind of the fact that the Sunday Times were onto the story. He thought someone at number 10 had leaked it. So he was sort of preemptively um, striking himself. And um, uh, and it was going to be a secret deal. And the reason it fell apart is because Rishi is too timid, too cautious, isn't going to agree to address these 
critical problems that Dominic wanted him to address. So, and anyway, wish he's got the worst of all possible worlds now because it's come out that he met with Dominic Cummings and was entertaining the prospect of having him become a kind of secret under-the-counter advisor. Uh, Dominic's conclusion in his blog uh, was that the Tories are summed up by the fact that Sunak, like Johnson, would rather lose than take government and the most critical parts of government seriously. Both thought most of their MPs agree with them, both were right. So Dominic thinks we just have to let the two parties completely self-destruct and then hope that there can be some renewal after that. So he thinks the sooner we get on with electing Starmer and that turns into the inevitable shit show, uh, the sooner we can tear everything up and begin afresh. Yeah, there's lots of people tweeting about it or ex-posting about it. This clip where Rishi said Dominic Cummings will have absolutely nothing to do with any government that I'm privileged to lead. But then he met with him. But he did st- he did still stick to his word in the end because he didn't go with him. So it's technically uh, not false. He just met with him after that. But um, yeah, I'm not and, and, that worried about and that. Sunak denies um, offering him any kind of job. Um, you know, it was only ever informal discussions you know um just 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 wanted a bit of advice but uh, never 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 seriously contemplated employing him in any capacity of course he would say that um but yeah. so yeah, according to dominic you know he was basically offered a job but he was so high-minded in the in the conditions he attached to it you've got to address these critical problems including our nuclear weapons infrastructure that uh they rejected rejected the offer because they don't take government seriously yeah well he would have been a better sort of Trump to Cummings's Bannon than Boris Johnson. I always thought there was a strange match, mm. you know, and, and in the Koonsberg interview, it was suggested that Cummings just tried to immediately get rid of Johnson when he realised he wasn't going to be a good puppet for him. But Richie's a much better candidate for that because he's a hard worker, as Cummings has acknowledged. He's a more sort of managerial type. He sort of gets gets on with the job behind the scenes, more less of a, you know, charisma politician. He might have been a good match for the Cummings, you know, manifesto, but it didn't happen but I want to know what these assurances were. Cummings basically said to him, yeah, I'll, I'll win you the election. Then you'll have to do X, Y, and Z. But how would he get those, get that locked in? You know, because Johnson just sort of abandoned yeah. pledges. Well, no, I, th- I don't want How would he make uh, sure? Did he hold Rishi's pets hostage? No, I think, well, I think as my, I, I've only read, I've only given a cursory reading to Cummings' blog about this. But as I understand it, he couldn't be fobbed off. Rishi tried to fob him off with, win me the next election. And then we can talk about what we'll do in the next parliament. Uh, but I'm not going to commit to doing any of these things on your wish list before I've won the election. Um, whereas Dominic wanted him to commit to doing them now as a condition of him helping Rishi to win the election. But what would, what would stop Rishi just abandoning them once he'd won anyway in a, just a kind of duplicitous politician way? There needs to be something yeah. locked in, some sort of, or oh, I release these emails or you know, yeah. something must have been... Agreed, right? Yeah, they might have discussed that, I suppose, um, but uh, that 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 is not disclosed by uh, Dominic maybe not discussed. But you know, Cummings he'd have had something compromat in there, maybe. a few WhatsApps to be released later. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I've got no idea. I'm not saying Cummings really did that. It's pure satire. Um, well, I guess I guess that the 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 maybe that maybe the guarantee would be that um, Cummings would be employed in a formal capacity post election victory uh, in a similar role to the role he had in. Boris Johnson's Downing Street, whereby he kind of controlled all the spads and uh, led a kind of created a kind of alternative government. But I, it's harder to see that working under Rishi than it did under Boris. Okay, and in general, regarding the election, there's been a series of articles. There was this one 
In the Sunday Times, 32% prefer Starmer, 22% back Rishi, but the undecideds offer Tories some hope, which is quite bleak. 29% of respondents undecided, and that's going to be the hope for the Tories. There was a one in the Mirror, We Want Election, was the Mirror's front page. This was last night as we record, and 31% of people want the vote, the election to be as soon as possible. 19% said spring, 16% opted for summer. This was Delta poll, but it was commissioned by the Mirror, so I just, I inherently don't trust it. But People want the election now and stuff like this. I mean, I don't know if it really matters when the election is at this point for Sunak. And we can also get on to Kemi, who seems to be doing better than Rishi. But any points on the uh, election, Toby, and when it should be? Yes. um, I don't think it's particularly likely that it'll be, assuming Rishi Sunak remains PM, um, I don't think it's particularly likely to be in April. Um, but um, I don't think he's likely to push it until January of next year either. I mean, one argument you hear is that um, it can't take place in the dead of winter because it's cold in the dead of winter and older people are less likely to come out and vote when it's really cold. And they're, of course, much more likely to vote conservative. So it'll be, if anything, uh, at the beginning of winter late autumn uh, rather than in the dead of winter. So I think the smart money is on sort of uh, October, November. Um, I don't think it'll be April because none of the kind of indicators which Rishi is hoping will turn his way will have um, turned his way enough by then. And um, But it can't rule it out. Uh, but I, I think, I, think um, I recently placed a bet on Kemi becoming the next PM. Got quite good odds. I got, um, I placed three different bets with three different betting companies. Um, But in one, I got odds of 22 to one, which I thought were pretty good Mm. odds. Um, I think the way the bookmakers have thought about the odds is, well, what are the chances of of Kemi um, uh, uh, succeeding Rishi Sunak after Rishi Sunak um, uh, has has clung on uh, in the next general election? I don't think they've anticipated the possibility that the Conservative Party might have yet another leadership election before the general election. Or maybe they have and they just think it's unlikely that Kemi will win it and who knows. Uh, but anyway, 22 to 1 struck me as pretty good odds. I think there's a higher than 22 to 1 against chance of Kemi becoming the next PM, which uh, I guess if it's going to happen, it will probably happen later this month, probably uh, if, if Rishi loses the third reading of the Rwanda bill. This is the Hill he's chosen to die on. So die on it, he may. Um, the rebels couldn't muster enough to defeat it on the second reading. But uh, amongst the conspirators, the story is that they weren't trying to do that. The, the, the time they, they they didn't want to, to, to trigger a leadership election over Christmas, not least because they wanted to spend Christmas with their friends and families. But they're perfectly happy to do that in January. So if the coup's going to happen, it, it it'll happen during the third reading of the Rwanda bill. And if Rishi loses that, Rishi said he will immediately call a general election and fight it on that issue. But people think he's bluffing and actually he'd just resign and that that would trigger another leadership election. And I think in that leadership election, yet another. And and people think, oh, would the Conservatives be so suicidal as to have yet another leadership election? Wouldn't it just make them look like a complete shower? But I think the answer is, well, but they're, they're kind of, you know, it's they look pretty suicidal at the moment you know um they're being led into the valley of death on what looks like to be a terrible slaughter um uh, so could it really be any worse and of course there would be a price to pay for holding another leadership election before the general um but maybe 
someone like Kemi could, you know, um, uh, get the electorate to look again at the Conservative Party to maybe give them another chance. Maybe it would bring back some of the, you know, people who voted Conservative in 2019 who subsequently drifted away. Uh, She could maybe be a little bit more credible on the immigration issue, being black. Um, One of the reasons um, successive Conservative Prime Ministers have been unable to really grasp that nettle is because they don't want to be accused of being racist, even Rishi Sunak, uh, whereas it's harder to accuse a black woman of being racist if she makes serious noises about doing something to curb immigration. So I I don't know. I I I I do think that... um, a Kemi-led Conservative Party uh, would do better than a Rishi-led Conservative Party, and 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 I think I think it would be a positive enough change to offset any negative consequences of holding yet another leadership election. Yeah, well, there was this Conservative poll from Conservative Home, and Kemi topped it with thirty-eight percent of the vote. Penny more than twenty-three percent. Swella Brabham fourteen percent, and this was Conservative members. And then sixteen members backed Boris Johnson, eighteen Nigel Farage, even though he's ineligible, and they're both ineligible. So that was interesting. There's still a, a people still want Farage, really. And Kemi would be good. You know, she's managed to appeal to the One Nation side, apparently by not being too radical about this Brexit bonfire of, of regulations. And they like that she's been moderate on that. And obviously, she's the people on the right like her. She's seen as a what she called herself the child of uh, soul and scrutiny, didn't she? Mm. And but I wonder is she is she enough though at this point? I think it has to be more radical to save the toys. I think it has to be. A Farage, or maybe that's maybe people think that's not realistic that he comes as a Tories, maybe he sticks with reform. But even though I like Kemi, can that save the Tories? I mean, it's better. I mean, I guess it's something, well, but it's a long, yeah, sort of rebuilding process. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, um, I, I do, I do, I do think she might enjoy, um, a honeymoon period after winning a leadership election. I mean, it's so, it's so counterintuitive. It's so arresting, it's so startling to think that the Conservative Party, which everyone thinks of as this kind of racist, patriarchal establishment institution beyond saving, if it was to elect a black woman who was educated at a comprehensive, worked at McDonald's as its leader, um, I think that would that would people would sit up and take notice and think, crikey, something's going on here. Um, and I can imagine her absolutely besting Keir Starmer in those leadership debates in a way that I can't imagine Rishi doing so. You can imagine her just kind of, you know, tossing him around the room, toying with him and then just swatting him away like a pesky gadfly. Uh, she's got so much yeah. more kind of natural authority and charisma and bottom than Keir Starmer. I, I can imagine that being a pretty unfair fight and therefore, you know, picking up quite a few votes that way. Yeah, and she's much smarter than Starmer. And as you say, being a woman of colour, she can tell the truth. As a straight white man, you you know, you're on eggshells the whole time. Is that The great thing is you can actually say some things that are true. And I say, I made that point last night on headliners and Josh was annoyed that I'd even mentioned her, her being a woman of colour for some reason that annoyed him. I don't know why, because it's obviously a factor, whether we like it or not. Um, and it does help in that way. Yeah, and it, it is funny that the Tories would be the first to do that. I mean, yeah, I, I like Kemi. She's very competent. She's very smart. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I'm all I'm all in favour of it. I just don't know if it's enough. I'm, I'm still in favour of Farage somehow takes over. That That's my... You know, I've made that prediction. Yeah. I'm sticking by it. Uh, I don't know how yet. Well, I think I think um, that there's a possibility. Isn't it? I mean, that f- there are, there are two possible ways in which Farage might re-enter politics. Um, one is the what Wellingborough by-election. Peter Bone has been recalled, so that's uh, 
a nightmare wending its way towards Rishi Sunak, another possible loss by-election. Um, and uh, it's possible that um, uh, Farage could enter as the, or could, could throw his hat into the ring as the Reform Party candidate. And um, given how tarnished the Tory brand is, you can imagine, you know, him winning as a sort of protest against conservatives um, uh, with a lot of, you know, people who voted for Peter Bone last time voting for Farage, particularly if the conservative candidate isn't very strong. So that's a, that's a possibility. And then a, a second more remote, remote possibility is that um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn enters the mayoral race in London um, because he's so annoyed with, um, you know, the whip having been taken away from him and having been expelled from the Labour Party. And he doesn't think he can get, get you know, re-elected standing as an independent in Islington uh, because people don't usually vote for individual candidates during general elections. They vote for parties, so unlikely to win during a general uh, standing as an independent, more likely to do better at any rate as a, as a, um, uh, an independent candidate for the mayoralty in London. Um, uh, so I think, I think uh, uh, so if, if Corbyn enters the race, uh, that splits the Labour vote, throws things open for, well, Susan Hall, the Conservative candidate, but also the Reform Party candidate. The Reform Party candidate at the moment is Howard Cox, who I think is a pretty good candidate, very good on ULAs and net zero, um, traffic calming measures, all that kind of stuff, very sound. Um, but it could be that um, you know he could be persuaded to step aside for Nigel if Nigel suddenly decides that uh, that's winnable. But you know, could not. I mean, I think Nigel's probably got a much better chance of winning the Wellingborough by-election than he does the London mayoral election. I mean, you know, it's a city that voted Remain, not Brexit. Um, it's uh, it, 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 it's it's a pro-immigration city, um, and Nigel's kind of history on that issue might might hurt him. You can just imagine, you know, all the smears that will be thrown at him by Sadiq Khan and his team. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's much more likely he'll he'll re-enter politics via the. But if he does that, it'll annoy the Conservatives and make it less likely that he could ever then go on to re-enter the Conservative Party and go on to and, and, and win, a, win a leadership election. I mean, he won't be standing as the Conservative candidate, but against the Conservative candidate. Yeah, and maybe he will stick with reform. He's written some very bold tweets about James Cleverly recently. Maybe he'll... Yeah, maybe we'll stick with reform. I, mean, I, I, see, I, I, see, I, I guess the only scenario in which your your fantasy comes true is if he can persuade the local Conservative Association in Wellingborough to adopt him as the official Conservative Party candidate and somehow CCHQ don't overturn that decision. Um, but that seems uh, that seems very unlikely. Lots of support in the party, though, hasn't he? Pretty Patel likes him. I met her very briefly at GB News. She is very pretty. She's, she's smaller than I thought, though. She's very small. And Liz Truss was at the GB party as well. Didn't speak to her, but um, don't know. So there's probably not much point mentioning it. I was going to say something else, but I've decided it's too inappropriate for air. Um, it was a funny joke, though. Um, but since you brought up the mayoral, mayoral elections, maybe we should just cover that as well. So Sadiq Khan was, well, I've got a story from the Express that he was roasted in a brutal Sky News clash on New Year's Eve because he was hoping to do it for a softball interview about New Year or something, but they said, what about the knife crime? He was talking about all the things. He's humbled by the things we've achieved together. And so they said to him, knife crime is rising at the fastest rate in five years. Knife point robbery is rising by more than a third. Where's the achievement in that? Which is a great point. And he made some fairly obscure stat about the reduction in under 25s injured with, with a knife. That's what we're supposed to be thrilled about in London now. Whereas everyone knows, just anecdotally walking around London, it's just a dangerous 
s-hole, as Trump would say. And um, Sadiq Khan's so awful. I don't know who is voting for him anymore. And uh, the New Year's Eve thing was also this London mayor of London presents or whatever was the, the fireworks. And it was all somehow about Khan. And that annoyed people as well. But I don't know who likes Khan anymore. I speak to the taxi drivers. They don't like him. Everyone hates him. I don't know who's voting for this guy. And I'm annoyed I didn't vote for Sean Bailey last time because he got closer than than I thought. I voted for Curtin. And actually, I think I did. It was a, it was one of those votes where you can have several choices, wasn't it? And I think I did put one in for Fox as well. And he's talking about running again. He says, I'm giving very serious thought to running for mayor of London again, Lawrence Fox. I'm not going to stand by and watch the city I live in and love be destroyed before our eyes. It is always my wish to collaborate with the other small parties, but they have refused. Watch this space. And Andrew Tate replied, do it. London is out of time. So maybe Fox will have another go. But sadly, you won't get close to Khan. And I'm not sure who can get close to him, really. Like you mentioned Suzanne Hall, but Susan Hall, but she's not she's not that close to him in the polls I've seen. So how do yeah. we get rid of this Well, guy? I think I think our best hope of getting rid of him is if Jeremy Corbyn enters the race as an independent. Um, so we ought to do our level best to encourage him to do that. And I'm sure he has been encouraged to do that by his increased prominence as a result of um, all the pro-Palestinian protests and the war in the Middle East. You know, he's sort of, uh, that's his issue and he's gone on lots of these demonstrations he stood on platforms he's spoken um so he probably thinks uh, you know life life isn't over for him he still has some mileage left in politics and uh, so it's not out of the question that that that, that he'll run apparently he has until the, the deadline for entering as a candidate is March 27th so he's still got plenty of time to think about it and I think if he did then I think Susan Hall provided Farage didn't enter as the Reform Party candidate I think Susan Hall would have a pretty good chance of defeating Sadiq as you said uh, Sean Bailey came closer than a lot of people thought he would even Zach Goldsmith did better than people thought he would Um, I don't think um, I don't think uh, you know Sadiq's unassailable I think uh, a lot of people are souring on him she said uh, that the, the, the fireworks display, which he turned into a kind of party political broadcast for him, uh, you know, the expense of the ratepayers, um, was widely criticised, and all the all the all the kind of nonsense about what he's achieved, what we've achieved together, um, all that was kind of um, put paid to by the stabbing of a sixteen-year-old boy uh, watching the fireworks at Parliament Hill uh, that very night. Um, which is, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was you know, here's he Sadiq Khan bragging about everything he's achieved as mayor when everyone knows that um, actually knife crime is uh, dramatically increased um, uh, under his mayoralty. Uh, and this, this murder just underlined that fact. Yeah, I think it's fair to say he's the most evil person that's ever lived. <laughs> uh, is that defamation? Or is that just satirical content? Because I, I got, I think I, I got worried once. You're not even allowed to call people evil. Is that true? I don't know if that's defamatory. Um, I don't know if that's been tested in the courts. I, I think, I think it. Okay. I think, I think a comedian can do that without, without, uh, without, without satirical being super content. loud. Yeah, yeah. Which I also happened to mean. But um, let's do, uh, let's let's do this other big story then, which is Trump. And I've sort of semi understood this. I mean, look, I've been off, guys. I've been ill. You know, I've not been following it like I normally do, but obviously Trump keeps getting taken off and on, very put back on various ballots. So the first one was Colorado. Now there's Maine. So Maine's top election official, and this comes from CNN, so it gets very ridiculously biased, but Maine's top election official has removed Trump from uh, the 2024 primary ballot in a shock decision based on the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows paused her decision pending a potential appeal in state court, which Trump's 
team said they intended to file. And the decision makes Maine the second state to disqualify Trump from office after the Colorado Supreme Court handed down its own stunning ruling that removed him from the ballot earlier this month. And they claim the development is a significant victory for Trump's critics, who, citing the January 6th attack, say they're trying to enforce a constitutional provision that was designed to protect the country from anti-democratic insurrectionists. Lol. So it's this thing of... um, And he's back on the ballot in, in Colorado, but it's all very bizarre. And it's all, and this Bellows person is such a, an idiot. She said, I do not reach this conclusion lightly. Democracy is sacred. I'm mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I'm also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection. So it's all this January 6th stitch up. You, you, you bandy around the term insurrection. You pretend that Trump was part of an insurrection. It wasn't. It was some blokes in weird hats being led around the Capitol as we've now seen, complete nonsense, and then treated terribly and thrown in prison. One guy killed himself because they tried to give him a nine-year term, which is absurd. It's an, it's a disgusting thing, the whole January 6th debacle. But now they're using it to take Trump off ballots in the name of democracy. I mean, clown world or what, Toby? Yeah, it does seem like uh, a crude example of lawfare being used to try and stop Trump standing as a candidate um, in their states um, and bound to fail, I'd say. Uh, As you said, um, uh, he was initially taken off the ballot in Colorado. Um, That decision was uh, rubber stamped by the state Supreme Court. Um, And um, Trump's legal team, I think, are now challenging that in the US Supreme Court. And uh, in the meantime, he's gone back on the ballot in Colorado. And I imagine... um, I imagine the Supreme Court challenge will be successful and the US Supreme Court will overturn the decision of the Colorado State Supreme Court, um, particularly as, you know, now as a majority of conservative justices on it. But um, this kind of thing just serves to, you know, bring the legal system into disrepute, uh, lower trust um, in uh, authority. Uh, it's it's terrible, a terrible development. And... Um, and bound to backfire and actually benefit Trump electorally. Yeah, I've never believed all this 4D chess stuff. I mean, I don't know what you think. There's all these claims from that. Oh, they're doing this because then Trump will run instead of DeSantis and blah, blah, blah. And they actually want him to run and all this. I've always thought it's just straightforward lawfare. They're just trying to, they'll do everything they can to take him off the ballot. They'll, they'll, just, they'll, they'll just abandon democracy in any way they can to win. And, and that's what they're doing. I mean, I don't yeah. see it as clever at all. I just see it as authoritarianism and the abuse of the Justice Department and other organs, the intelligence community, etc. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I agree. I don't think uh, I don't think it's part of some uh, well thought through conspiracy to actually boost Trump's candidacy um, uh, because they think he's more beatable than Ron DeSantis or uh, other potential. That was a theory candidates. at one point, but, but yeah. now he's so far ahead. That theory looks silly. I always thought that theory was silly, but he's so far ahead in polls. Not only ahead of the Republicans, but he's ahead of Biden in, in all polls as well. Yeah, so they're just doing everything they can to stop him. Yeah, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, 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 like you, I think they're just they're just they, they they see a they see an opportunity to make some political hay to enhance their standing to appear on CNN more often, and they've seized it um, because you know they are demented anti-Trumpers. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Let's let's do this. Speaking of jokes, let's do this. Uh, Ricky Gervais, I don't know what you call it. Ricky Gervais, it wasn't cancelled. There was just, it was trending for a bit, I guess. 
he did a few. It was to do his new special Armageddon, new comedy special on Netflix, isn't it? I haven't watched it, but he did a particularly interesting joke about Gary Lineker. He talks about going down to Dover. He says, "What I do now? I'm, I'm woke now. I, I, I like to because I'm I'm, I'm pro immigration. I go down to Dover." I see a dinghy and I let people off. I'm like, women and children? Oh, no, just the lads. Is it just you lads? And he says it's just lads, which is funny. And then he's, and he also talks about waiting for a big lorry. He goes down and waits for a lorry. There'll be a lad clinging to the bottom of it, and he'll say, where are you headed? And he says, Gary Lineker's house. It doesn't sound that great when I've relayed it there, but the joke's, to be honest, not that coherent anyway, even in its original version, but it's all right. But what was notable to me is just that he was prepared to make a joke that was sort of anti, at least illegal immigration, and was satirizing Gary Lineker, which obviously most comedians wouldn't do, and it because Gervais is on the anti woke side, so it was quite interesting. And I always feel torn with Gervais. He created a work of unparalleled genius with The Office, which is so perfect. I almost can't believe it exists, especially the fact that the BBC didn't really back it that much, and it was just a sort of they just did it off their own bat. But it's one of those things. It's kind of like the movie Goodfellas. It's one of those perfect aesthetic creations to me that's almost just unbelievably perfect and then extras was very good as well but so full props to Ricky Gervais for that I mean it's that's you know that's has achieved world historical greatness with The Office he's not a stand-up comedian this is where I unfortunately have to side with Frankie Boyle who was sort of hypocritically attacking Gervais about various things and everyone just showed Frank you know Frankie Boyle clips and his pathetic defense of his jokes about Jordan's son which didn't make any sense and obviously he's a hypocrite but he did make one point I unfortunately agreed with, which Gervais is not a stand-up. And that's because he's never been through the clubs. He's not, not, I don't mean that he has to earn some sort of credentials by playing Jonglers Portsmouth. I just mean that you can just tell as a stand-up. He only did stand-up once he was already famous from other things and then just did a tours off the back of it. It's not really the same as being a stand-up. And it was notable when he did that HBO thing with Louis C.K., Chris Rock, and Jerry Seinfeld that he kept c- concluding very different things to the three of them because they're all hardened stand-ups whereas Gervais has sort of just waltzed into it. So he'll always not feel like not a stand-up to me, and I don't think his stand-up works. But that said, I am glad that he's a sort of on our side in the culture war broadly making these attacks on Lineker. What did you think of all that? Yeah, I, th- I haven't seen the comedy special either, um, but uh, I'm a fan of Ricky Gervais's. Um, I think that uh, in the war on woke, um, comedians of his stature, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock are our greatest weapon. Um, and uh, ridicule seems to be the one, um, it's like kryptonite to the kind of woke warriors. They just don't have any defense against it. And to portray them as kind of humorless and unable to laugh at themselves um, is, is, I think, uh, homing in on their Achilles heel and is, is, is the way to try and um, deprive them of any luster or glamour for young people. Um, so all in favour of that uh, for cultural reasons. Um, uh, and I, I saw those, I saw the clips, I saw the, you know, the extended bit about immigration I thought was quite funny. Like you, I didn't quite understand the Gary Lineker joke. It was, it was like, so the, the illegal migrant is heading to Gary Lineker's house. What? Why is that funny? I don't quite. Is it because it was Gary Lineker's sort of? It's so unlikely that Gary Lineker would in fact be housing or have agreed to house any Ill- illegal migrants. It was supposed to be sort of ironic in that respect, or something. Or well, it's because it- there's been a lot of chat about Lineker. Did he take any in? Would he take any in? Did he actually take some in? And you know, people always talk right. about it. Is it become a sort of a theme, a trope of sort of 
Lineker, is Lineker actually going to take any in? So it, it did make sense, but it, but in that sense, it, the reference made sense, but the setup didn't really make. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest joke, but it was just sort of like it was a bit of a crowbar in reference, which I appreciated anyway. Mm. But what was interesting about that to me is just that a comedian would make a joke like that. That's the most you never yeah. get comedians talking about immigration. It's certainly in, a, in anything except the most pro-immigration stance, you know. So an anti-immigration joke from any comedian, even though I'm making this sort of perhaps annoying technical point that I don't see Gervais as a stand-up, which no one outside of the comedy world will, will care about. But he, for him to even be making that joke is new territory. It's just conservative type ideas have become more becoming more and more acceptable because they just have to be because of where we are. See, and I, that's just one example. Let me ask Go you a on. question as, as, as a sort of... Um right of center stand-up comic or as you were for you know 15 years or something um were you grateful for the fact that um in mainstream comedy it was simply unacceptable to joke about things like trans immigration race because um it just left the entire field open to you so you didn't actually have to kind of you know think that hard about making jokes because it was all low-hanging fruit no one else was making jokes about this stuff so it kind of it was actually it made your lives weirdly even though there was of course this risk of being cancelled in some cases people did get cancelled you sort of got cancelled and it made it harder to earn a living get on the bbc etc in other respects did it make your life easier was it easier to be a comedian, a non-woke? Is it easier to be a non-woke comedian? Because no one else, you have so few other people to compete with about coming up with good non-woke jokes. It wasn't It wasn't for me because I was playing the clubs where I always found people had to have a level of knowledge. And I was doing it, when I was doing the clubs the most was really before this level of culture war saturation. Even now, I think it would be difficult because people in the clubs they usually don't know anything for a start so they don't even know the thing that you're subverting so they don't even understand the premise and if they do they're very wary about subverting it because they're just let's say it's london and they're young people at a club like top secret comedy and they one they don't know anything and two they they they're worried about seeming non liberal so it doesn't it never really worked for me the only way it place it worked was comedy unleashed which is then a completely parallel world mm-hmm. where everything then works you can say everything anti-woke because people a know about it and b are on your side so then it works you can make anti-nx jokes and so on but in a general club you've got to be able to work all around the country in liverpool and preston and uh, i don't know middlesbrough and then or then down south and you're going like how do i have jokes set or you know you, you don't need the exact same set but you, you, need, you need stuff that works everywhere so i found it i didn't even broach those topics very much i just had you know other stuff so for me, it was irrelevant, but, you know, we should talk about this because Dave Chappelle has, 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 a, a, has gone in again on the trans stuff. And it's so funny to see, as you say, the Achilles heel of the woke. We see that um, Chortle, a disgusting comedy blog that hates comedians, say Dave Chappelle's still joking about trans people. The Independent say Dave Chappelle fills Netflix special with jokes about trans and disabled people. He's <laughs> just filling it up with anti-disabled content. And... Um, very funny headline, unintentionally, from the Daily Beast. Dave Chappelle's new Netflix special proves he's learned nothing. I love that. It's like, you've learned nothing. We tried to educate you, Chappelle, but you've learned nothing about the views you're supposed to have. It's like, yeah, he just doesn't give a shit about your stupid bollocks. It's not that he's learned nothing. It's just so... And they're saying he goes right back to mocking trans people. So the one joke that he, he had that's been going viral is this one about meeting Jim Carrey and it's this long anecdote about he got to meet Jim Carrey but it was on the set of Man on the Moon and he was in character 
in method mode as Andy Kaufman. So although you met Jim Carrey, it wasn't the real Jim. He had to pretend he was Andy Kaufman the whole time. And that was kind of annoying because it was a big chance to meet him. It's like, anyway, that's how I feel when I talk to trans people. He's saying that like, you're not Andy Kaufman, you're Jim Carrey. And that's how I feel. So pretty funny joke. It's a kind of long misdirection joke. And it's always entertaining just listening to Chappelle tell an anecdote for its own sake. Um, what did you think of the Chappelle? Yeah, I've actually, unlike the Ricky Gervais comedy special, I have watched the Dave Chappelle comedy special. I watched it last night um, and I thought it was pretty good, um, but slightly disappointing in that I went and saw, I think I, I think we discussed it on the podcast, I went and saw Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle live at the O2 and a lot of the material that um, Dave Chappelle uh, uses in his comedy special is material he also used at the O2. So some of the some of the gags were familiar to me, um, uh, but you know um, uh, worked pretty well second time around. Um, interestingly, he 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 does start off with this long anecdote about visiting Jim Carrey on the set of Man in the Moon, um, and it turns into quite a funny uh, trans gag. Um, but then he goes on to say, "But I'm not, I'm not going to." He he sort of says, "I've learned my lesson." Um, uh, he, he actually sort of he sort of pretends that he's he's listened to all the journalists the and, and yeah all the culture warriors that have been wagging their fingers in his face about you know punching down and he says I love to punch down uh, that's the kind of comedian I am but I don't want to punch down against the 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 trans people anymore they're too well organized the fight back is too vicious you know I don't want those people after me anymore uh, so I'm going to punch down against handicapped people they're a little bit more they're a little, a little less organized he calls them handicaps. Um, and then he makes a few jokes about handicaps, uh, which I didn't think were particularly funny. Um, uh, and then he goes back to making jokes about trans people. Um, uh, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, it felt a bit like kind of, you know, uh, uh, almost as though he's kind of put his best material into earlier Netflix specials. And these are just leavings from the earlier comedy specials. Um, uh, it wasn't quite as, it, it ends with this kind of bit, which I didn't really like um, about, it's called the dreamer. I think it's the name of the comedy special. And he talks about how he'd always dreamt of being a successful comedian. He sort of visualized his own success, visualized playing in this club in Washington, DC, which is where the comedy special is recorded uh, in front of a massive audience and being very successful and married, two kids, etc. cetera. Um, and, and it's all about kind of having a dream, following your dream. And he doesn't quite spell it out, but it's essentially, this is, this is what makes America such a great country. Uh, and it felt a little bit kind of cheesy um uh to me uh, it was like uh, when someone goes from being from satirizing everything and you know with pinpoint accuracy um to then kind of rather blandly trotting out kind of you know platitudinous stuff about how great america is it, it jarred with me slightly and it, it also sort of descends into more or less complete incoherence towards the end as well minor quibble i still well, think he's a god <laughs> it's very hard to write new material that's basically even if you're Dave Chappelle with infinite stage time and status and and just and one of the most gifted comedians you just you know coming up with that many specials incredibly hard so you know I, I give him a bit of a pass probably I haven't watched it but I try not to watch comedy anymore but um yeah I, I give him a pass even if it's not quite as good and and as I said with Gervais at least he's on our side in the cultural vaguely broadly like you say not completely sounds like he's thrown some other bits in there um but Maybe we should do our other occasional section. Well, I say other occasional section. That, was, that wasn't that was really a section. Unless that was part of our new culture section. I was thinking we could do a 
culture section called culture bores or cultural corner. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> Different <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Uh, at one point I, you suggested um, we do something on season two of Reacher. Uh, because yeah, watched I've it. got one episode left. Okay. No spoilers. Have you watched it? I, I've watched the first two episodes. Um, so yeah, well, no, can't spoil no spoilers for me either. Um, but you, yeah, well, Reacher is. You said you, you thought episode one after fifteen minutes you had to abandon it because it had gone woke, and I and I watched it yeah. sort of, uh, and I didn't really spot that. It didn't. It didn't feel it had become more woke than it was, and it's not particularly woke. My woke radar is so strong. <laughs> I was. I watched a film about a, a tailor who gets involved with the mafia. And I got almost to the very end. And then a black woman comes in in a role that she would never, just never have been a completely unrealistic for the time period. And I was just like, I'm turning it off. I will turn off a film 10 minutes from the end. That's hardcore anti-woke. <laughs> so with Reacher, I was very reactionary. And I was just like, I'm sick of this. Do you know why, why, why it was? It was because the whole thing was like, oh, I've got this black lesbian friend and I just respect her so much. Oh, you're doing, there's a whole thing about how well she was doing in her career. Mm. It's completely gratuitous. It's like, I'm just doing so well and earning so much money. And he was just like, I respect you so much. And I was like, this is not content. And then she turns out she's not even a lesbian. She's asexual. She's not attracted to anyone. I was like, hang on, we've got an asexual black woman who's just smashing it in her career. And that's just shoehorned in for no reason. It was just pissing me off. Another thing that pissed me off was they were, they were like, it was Marines hanging out uh, after a fight and the fight was unrealistic as well mm. and then they're singing saturday nights all right for fighting and the way they were singing it was kind of a glee version of it it was just a bit sort of camp and gay and i was annoyed about that. that turned out to be a plot point so i, was, I calmed down a bit and then josh told me in the books the character the black lesbian non-lesbian asexual is, is similar in the books although the books are a bit libtarded anyway because the author is a democrat so I sort of gave it a slight pass on that. I think really it just struggled to be as good as the first season. It just was very, a lot of building a plot that I didn't really care about and not that many. The first season is way, way better, even though it's got yeah. woke casting. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I, maybe they have tried to kind of add a bit of woke window dressing to season two. But the basic premise, which is, you know, big, muscular, ex-military, white guy kind of um, fights evil criminals and kind of saves people that, that's not very that's not a very woke premise no that's the non-woke aspect but then you've got that one thing that starts to bother me it's not really woke but it's kind of woke it's this thing where women can just beat up anyone you've got that woman in there who she was in smallville once and jack reacher is kind of on the level of smallville it's kind of like fairly trashy tv you've got the woman in there you know the, the not the black lesbian asexual the the other one yeah She's helping him out. She's a private investigator or something. Yeah. And she's just beating up people. She couldn't beat up anyone. At one point, yeah. she says, he goes, do you need help with yours? She goes, oh, I'll be all right or something like that. And I'm thinking, you totally won't be all right. I know. I You're going up against too. like yeah, yeah, killers. Yeah. And she goes up against the guy. She's just got like a crowbar or something. And the guy's got a gun. And she ends up beating this guy. And I'm thinking, you would get absolutely, I could smash your face in with no, not that I would, with no training at all. I could, you could have a, probably a gun and I could probably beat you, but that, you know, Maybe not a gun, but I could certainly beat this woman in any hand-to-hand combat. And an elite killer who's after you with tra- high, with training, you're just going to beat him. It's totally implausible. It's completely implausible. And and they have to include these scenes in which these rather slight, very attractive, 30-something women beat the living hell out of these kind of you know armies of enormous built white guys. <laughs> it's like it's a trope now. I mean, it, you can't avoid it in everything. Uh, it comes up in Slow Horses. I don't know if you're a fan of Slow Horses, but uh, I'm a fan no, of Slow I Horses. That was woke. I think I think it has. I think I think in season three, it almost jumped the shark. I was very disappointed. Loved the show. Uh, but yeah, there's a kind of ludicrous kind of uh, climatic scene in which this, I mean, the woman who kind of uh, 
takes out all the, all the kind of white train i mean military train their ex-afghanistan their mercenaries she takes out one after another with her bare hands and uh, and she's like she's 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 even smaller than the female character you're talking about in reacher i mean she's practically a dwarf and she she somehow (laughs) takes takes on these men who are twice her size uh it's just completely ludicrous it is, Luke. I mean, it happens as well with men to a degree where the character, like when Tom Cruise played Jack Reacher, and we're supposed to believe he can beat up these massive guys. And stuff. So it does happen sometimes with a small man. But then you go, okay, if they had training, it's not as ridiculous as a small woman. And then, a, you know, a strong woman who's like an MMA fighter, you know, you get women in the army. I could I could picture a woman who could beat some men up. But these, these women are just, they're sort of average normal sort of looking non-strong looking women it's ridiculous maybe, maybe we could maybe we could complain to a regulator that actually the inclusion of these yeah. uh you know um street fighting female characters is harmful misinformation uh, because you can imagine you know some deluded women having kind of watched these girl bosses take on the bad guys in shows like reacher imagine that they can actually you know, go down the g- spend spend a spend a couple of days in the gym uh do a bit of boxer size and they imagine you know, they can take on these kind of bad guys and and very quickly find out they can't and end up in the emergency room i mean i i wonder if yeah, it's it, dangerous it is dangerous yeah yeah you get these chicks coming up thinking they're boss babes you can fight and they of course they can't yeah it's dangerous terribly dangerous i care about women toby that's my point it's dangerous yeah, for, for women feminist reasons copying this at home you object it should say characters. don't try this at home yeah and it should say at the end, any women watching this, just please don't try any of the techniques involved. This is a film. You know, like if this is, we, don't try any of these yeah. techniques at home. You yeah. will be beaten up <laughs> yeah. horribly. For, for entirely woke reasons, we've given the impression that small, uh, unmuscly women could actually beat a typical white guy in a fight. This is completely misleading. Do not try this at home or anywhere else. You will get killed. Yeah. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. Just a quick disclaimer. <laughs> I think that'll be fair. You could, you can almost watch it then. Um, all right, so we both, but it's not very good, is it? I'm once stopped yeah, from the end and haven't no. even bothered finished. It's just not very good. The first season was a lot better. Well, now let's do an occasional section we do. It is called Across the Pond. So I thought we'd quickly go across the pond this week, Toby, to talk about Calendar Gate and Cake Gate. So I don't know if anyone followed this, but it was this conservative calendar we may have mentioned before. It was an alternative to Bud Light. It was a ultra right beer that was woke free beer from Seth Weathers, who's known as Conservative Dad, and and he launched this calendar, and it had people like Ashley St. Clair, Dana Lausch, and others, the redheaded libertarian Josie, the redhead libertarian, and Riley Gaines, and they were posing in this calendar, and this sparked controversy because especially the redheaded libertarian was posing in kind of in an apron with high heels, but also with a cross behind it which was a bit weird. It was a kind of mixture of like vague raciness with Christianity. And you're like, is that kind of satanic to do that? Is that a bit kind of uh, demeaning to Christianity and a bit non-conservative? And, uh, and and in one way, it's all absolutely ridiculous because it's just an incredibly sort of tame calendar that you would far tamer than you'd see in FHM in 1994 or something. But but um, so it's ridiculous to get annoyed about. And to the English sensibility, it probably did look very absurd. But conservatives kicked off. There's like a big Twitter space about it, X space. This guy, Bryson Gray, is that his name? The rapper. He was very against it. And there was lots of Christian conservatives saying, why are you doing this? You're just, you know, you're using, you're selling your bodies for money and passing it off as conservatism. And the sort of counter was, we look ridiculous arguing about a calendar. This is why we lose the culture war. 
And then on the back of this, there was a very similar story where this Isabel, Isabella De Luca, there was a video of her making a cake, but the argument was that it was, she was doing it in a sort of sexualized way uh, because of her, basically because of her appearance and uh, her top. There's no other way to really say it. And um, this got shared, even though it was three months old, by that guy Rollo Tomasi. He's, this all gets very, very online, guys. He's a sort of YouTuber, talks about men's issues. So it really kicked off. And, and the argument was, again, you know, is she sort of just using her looks to pretend to be a conservative versus shut up, you stodgy conservatives. She's just a woman making a cake. And uh, Rachel Wilson, who I, who I was going to have on my other podcast, but she, uh, we had to reschedule in the end, she uh, was talking about it a lot. She, it was basically her versus Isabella. And so it's still going on as we record. Someone just pointed out why you fine with Melania Trump. And she said, you're so dense, missed the whole point of the argument. It was never about cake or the shirt, as I've explained multiple times to all the slow people. It's about the fact that Isabella expects us to believe she is here to talk about politics. She is simp fishing and pretending to be into right-wing politics because she knows there's a large market of young, disaffected men on the right. She is doing a cosplay of a conservative Christian woman when really she's just another Instagram bikini babe. I just want these girls to stop insulting my intelligence. Melania has never pretended to be a political thinker while modeling bikinis. So... Those are the kind of basic positions. Do you have any take on this at all, Toby, that won't get us cancelled? Uh, well, it does seem slightly baffling that it should have caused, you know, a minor scandal even within the conservative movement. Um, as you say, the the, the 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 conservative dad's calendar was very tame. I mean, there wasn't even anyone in a bikini. Uh, all the women were fully clothed. Um, some of them weren't even exposing their upper arms. Um, so... Um, seemed very tame by European standards. And often you know, the kind of puritanism, the puritanical strains in American culture are baffling to Europeans, um, uh, maybe less baffling to the British than the French or the Italians. But I recently read a story saying that, um, that Italian news kiosks had only been able to survive given how few people buy newspapers and magazines these days by selling calendars of hot priests this is apparently a thing in italy every christmas uh the, the these these newspaper kiosks will sell calendars of kind of hot priests uh which are bought in droves by italian housewives presumably gays as well um but no one bats an eyelid about that in italy so it seems a bit odd that people would think this was a kind of uh you know desecration of uh, christian morality because these women posing fully clothed but obviously quite attractive yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, some people have predicted a kind of swing to the right in society that could actually happen. We could end up with a kind of Taliban-esque society. We, we you know, you can see strains of this. How, how we, the young people, particularly and, and very online people, seem very conservative. It's tricky. I'm, I'm divided on it myself. I mean, Rachel again, Rachel Wilson here has, has put a. A post about it. Cons, meaning conservatives, can't even tell you what they're trying to conserve. The reason the right has been losing for my entire lifetime is because there is no cohesion and they don't stand on Christian principles anymore. They're just Democrat light. Until we fix that, we're not winning any elections. And even if we did win an election, it wouldn't fix anything. It's not about the trad thought outfits per se. It's about the fact that the right has completely embraced feminism and sexual liberation. And they're basically progressive libertarians who just want a slightly less oppressive tax code. If we do not stop tolerating feminism, sexual liberation, and the gay and trans agenda, then there is no homeland to fight for. 
There is no reason to care who wins elections. We're just Sodom and Gomorrah. So yeah, this is where it's going in America. It's not where it's going, but it's one strain on the right. It's mm. it's the socially conservative right, which is more socially conservative, as you point out, than our right versus the libertarian, you know, we just want lower taxes side. I could see it happening. I mean, there is an argument that culture could suddenly go there. And, you know, we've been fighting wokeness and we want sort of more freedom, but maybe we don't end up with that. Maybe we just end up with, you know, some sort of radical backlash against mm. this progressivism we just end up in a kind of strict you know something like the old american south in the civil war or something well this is this is definitely the, fewer slaves. The, the 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 split in the parliamentary conservative party as well uh, on the right anyway of the parliamentary conservative party you've got the kind of natcons um like miriam cates and um danny kruger um uh uh, who, who do believe um, in a kind of muscular Christian version of conservatism. Uh, and then you've got the kind of um, free traders, free marketeers, Thatcherites like Dan Hannon. Um, and one of the things I think which makes uh, Kemi a credible candidate is that she does seem to um, straddle these two camps quite successfully. Um, you know, she's, I think, quite socially conservative, but at the same time, very pro-free trade. Well, she's successfully done a number of trade deals across the world. Um, yeah. So we do have that here, just in a less extreme way. Interesting to see how it plays out. I sort of, I, I feel a little bit in both. I sort of go, yeah, I mean, the calendar's nothing. You're all being pathetic. And then on the other hand, and we have to win. And I often make the case for people like Andrew Tate as kind of imperfect, you know, generals on our side of the culture war. And that gets harder to make now that he's converted to Islam and all this. But I, I do sort of, I've made these kind of pragmatic arguments in the past. Then again, there is something in the other argument. You look at some of these people, some of the young women, they are just clearly posting for attention. They tack on something about conservatism, but no one really takes it seriously. And it's obviously driven by their looks and stuff. You go, yeah, do we really need that? So then again, they can just say, well, you're just being jealous. I look good in these photos. And that's always hard to counter, which is what Isabella has done. She's like, well, hang on. I look, I look hot in these photos, which is always hard to counter that point. So... Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm sort of on the fence, but it could get pretty weird. Um, and you wanted to do one other thing in the pond section across the pond because Claudine Gay has just resigned from Harvard as we record. Yeah, breaking news. Um, she's finally gone. I mean, uh, I'm amazed she clung on this long, actually. Um, uh, not only did she completely mishandle the uh, her congressional testimony um, about anti-Semitism at Harvard, um, but it then emerged that she... Uh, had plagiarized kind of vast swathes of her PhD thesis. Um, and it just got worse and worse. And uh, initially, Harvard tried to spin this, and they clearly kind of told her not to talk to the media. And she was being handled by um, the Harvard press office. Uh, and they tried to kind of spin it as, as not really plagiarism, something a lesser crime, but that line has become impossible to uh, maintain. And um, some big alumni donors have taken away the money they promised to Harvard. It seems to be causing Harvard serious reputational harm. So she's now finally fallen on her sword. She's the shortest serving president of Harvard in the university's history. Um, I mean, it looks increasingly as though she was what's colloquially known as a diversity hire. Um, and let's hope that, um, you know, I mean, her her, 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 her kind of, um, what she was most widely known for before she became the president of Harvard was for getting rid of um, Roland Fryer, 
who was a kind of dissident social scientist, African-American, um, but challenged the kind of BLM uh, hypothesis that um, black males were at greater risk of being lethally shot than white males by the police and came up with reams of data to kind of uh, disprove that um, and obviously upset a lot of people in the kind of woke community I didn't like uh, evidence being presented to discredit some of the more outlandish claims that BLM and they were making and so she forced him out of Harvard that was a great claim to fame before she then went on to become president so good riddance yeah and it's too long to read a whole resignation letter but Christopher Rufo has summarized it he says this is Claudine Gay's resignation letter. Rather than take responsibility for minimizing anti-Semitism, committing serial plagiarism, intimidating the free press and damaging the institution, she calls her critics racist. This is the poison of DEI ideology. Glad she's gone. And I can't read it all, but there's a funny sentence at the end where she says, um, when my brief presidency is remembered, which it won't be, I hope it will be seen as a moment of reawakening to the importance of striving to find our common humanity and of not allowing rancor and vituperation to undermine the vital process of education. It's like, no, it won't, it won't be remembered at all. And if it is, it'll be remembered as the exact opposite. <laughs> uh, uh, it'll be all about rancor and nothing to do with common humanity, the complete opposite. Another deluded, woke idiot. Yeah. And she's actually set her own cause back quite significantly, I would have thought. Um, you know, it's it's going to be harder for Harvard to appoint another black woman. Um they're going to be held to a higher standard than she was. At least you hope they will be. Um, so she, but, she she hasn't she hasn't done her own cause much good. No, on the plus side, she will be able to get a role in Reacher beating up That's a series true. of yeah, bad guys yeah, yeah, with ease. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there is that. Okay, um, that was across the pond. Maybe we have time to just very quickly do our other occasional section, which is the X Files. And I just wanted to very quickly see if you had any comment on the uh, Tucker interview with Kevin Spacey, Toby, because this was pretty interesting. Tucker introduced somebody like, oh, this is, who's he going to talk to? And it was a kind of reveal, pullback and reveal. It was Kevin Spacey in his Frank Underwood character. So it's fascinating for a few reasons. I mean, one, just the fact that Spacey would appear on something like Tucker, kind of align himself with Tucker. He, he's aligned himself with Douglas Murray. So he's kind of fully on that side now. Other people saying, well, we don't want Kevin Spacey on our side and making various accusations against him, which I'm not going to repeat. But it, it was interesting. And he was, it was sort of provocative. And he, he talked about journalists. Do we need to give these journalists a push? And then I found all these sort of low IQ people on, on Twitter saying, one person saying, I think he's doing his Frank Underwood character. It's like, yes, well, well <laughs> done for realizing that. And someone else said, I think this uh, is a reference to when he pushes the journalist in the series. Like, yes, thank you, geniuses. So it's just the, the level of analysis was shocking. But but there was also a more, almost too deep level of analysis, perhaps, that said, is this a warning shot from Tucker against the establishment? Are they saying Spacey knows about the Epstein list? He knows about everything that went on. And is this a warning? And there's something in that, potentially. Is this a warning to the establishment saying Spacey's ready to dish? Could there be something in that? I suppose there. There might be. Um, my- I only ask you because you're famously in Epstein's black book. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Spacey will be? I, I, I'm dreading, of course, the release, Nick, of the um, what the the the, the names, the 120 the names, 120 names. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I, I think I can guarantee that uh, my name won't be won't be amongst them. Um, I never went to Pedo Island, never said, I have to say this every bloody time his name comes up. I never went on a Lolita Express. Maxwell's list. It wasn't even Epstein's <laughs> That's list. Right. 
Uh, but I'm fully expecting to receive some angry phone calls uh, when uh, my 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 entry in Ghislaine Maxwell's address book is published once again on Twitter. So I haven't changed my phone number. Um, but uh, yeah, um, it's interesting. I think Kevin Spacey has clearly decided that in spite of uh, not being found guilty, um, even in a civil court where the standard is just a preponderance of evidence um, of any of the sex crimes he's been accused of, um, he's finished um, uh, as an actor, um, uh, at least in the mainstream. Um, so now he's uh, he's decided to throw in his lot with um, with our side. Um, I'm, I, I, I've got no objection to that. I think that's great. I think he's an incredibly talented actor and the more talented gifted people in our column the better it just makes the other side look uh, you know uncharitable and mean-spirited and talentless um so yeah i i saw i saw him um i was at the I, we talked about it i was at the roger scruton memorial lecture given by douglas murray in which the big reveal at the end was kevin spacey doing a scene from time and of athens and it was mesmerizing it was fantastic it was one of the greatest CUDA theatres I've ever seen. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan, and I like the fact that he's now decided to throw in his lot with our side in the culture war. And I think it's probably quite sensible too. He might yet be cast, you know, in in um, uh, the Daily Wire's next big movie. That's true, actually. Now, and he was in the Spectator as well, recommending his top movies of the year. But he did pick a kind of uh, some civil rights thing. I thought his his choice was a little bit kind of like, hey, I'm still you know cool sort of thing, and uh, yeah. Still a little bit woke, and um, not woke as such, but a bit, a bit liberal or whatever. But yeah, I mean, he's got no other options really, has he? Sadly, I rewatched L.A. Confidential the other day, oh, and it's, it's still incredibly good. He, that's just one of his many great movies. Yeah, he's an incredible actor. So yeah, let's see how that goes. It was kind of fascinating to see him back. All right, well, that was the X Files. Now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with some of our top stories of the week. Uh, Will, the first story you wanted to talk about was Anders Tegnell's witness statement that he submitted in his evidence to the Hallett Inquiry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is the story. This was from back in uh, before Christmas of the Sweden state epidemiologist during uh, COVID, Anders Tegnell, uh, a a legend from for lockdown skeptics, of course, as the as the individual who, who single handedly I don't think that's to overblow his role who single handedly uh, led Sweden to resist the enormous international pressure uh, back in spring 2020 to follow the herd in locking down and led them to uh, the alternative what was essentially the standard public health uh, model of not locking down sticking with voluntary. Uh, recommendations and not overreacting and uh, he has made his submission written submission to the COVID inquiry and it is completely contrary uh, to the narrative as we know the very biased narrative uh, so it's the official narrative of pro lockdowns and very much the narrative that uh, Lady Hallett and the uh, rest of the the people involved with the inquiry are really are really pushing that's the that's the lockdowns were necessary and effective and uh, whatever harms they did and his submission runs completely contrary to that uh, he essentially says Sweden had no lockdown and came out better. He points out that the uh, that Sweden had no uh, had no f- the the questions asked him did what was Sweden's approach to lockdowns and he just writes in Nordic deadpan no formal lockdown used. Uh, the questions ask what about a so-called circuit breaker lockdown? 
uh, and he says none used. And in terms of what happened, uh, in terms of excess mortality, that's the deaths above average uh, Sweden experienced. And he says excess mortality differs slightly depending on the method. Uh, but he says Sweden is at the same level as the Nordic countries and sometimes lower. The UK has con- has a considerably higher excess mortality. Ouch. That is completely devastating, completely uh, succinct. Uh, and he goes into some other detail as well about what Sweden did. Uh, but in a way, that's all we really need to hear. And it's all really Baroness Hallett really needs to hear to, to completely upend the whole narrative and direction that she is taking this inquiry. An inquiry that we should uh, emphasise and stress again that uh, shouldn't be going in any particular direction. That's not what the inquiry should be doing. It should be listening uh, to all the evidence and then coming uh, at the at the end to uh, to certain uh, conclusions. Uh, so will will they take any notice? Will she take any notice? You'd have to bet against it. But it's still uh, really powerful that Anders has has made this submission and made these points uh, to the inquiry. I mean, he he hasn't been summoned as a witness to be cross-examined by Hugo Keith, has he, um, as far as I know. So it's unlikely that his evidence will be considered in any detail by the inquiry. Um, when he was part of that red team group that had a Zoom meeting with Boris Johnson, I think towards the end of 2020, didn't he say something to the effect of, um, you'll need to do something? He wasn't recommending no NPIs at all. And I think some lockdown apologists have cited that as his acknowledgement that um, Sweden was sufficiently different from the UK, that the UK should not necessarily follow Sweden's example of not locking down. Uh, Sure. Uh, He wrote in September 2020, uh, when he was asked by Boris Johnson to give his view on what the UK should do based on Sweden's experience. Uh, He wrote, uh, the short answer to the question of whether the UK government should intervene is, in my opinion, yes, he wrote. The myth that Sweden did nothing during the pandemic is false. We have initiated a wide range of activities, not least in the area of communication. Uh, And he goes on to explain there was advice, not insistence, advice to work from home where possible um, and to self-isolate while you are symptomatic. So while he did say that you should do that, that, that Boris should do something, that governments should uh, do something, uh, the something is is greatly uh, scaled back from lockdowns. He's not a, he's not saying or admitting that they did something uh, there's something wrong um, in what they did in Sweden. He's also there's no suggestion that there should be uh, something enforced. There should be legally enforceable lockdowns. Uh, stay-at-home orders, uh, school closures. He's not talking about that. He's talking about advice to isolate uh, when symptomatic, advice to work from home uh, where possible, and communication about the the disease and and the threat. Now, sceptics could take issue with some of those points. Uh, Maybe they'll agree with him on what he advised and what was suggested, or maybe they won't. But they're certainly a far cry uh, from what um, the UK and most other countries around the world imposed, um, coercively, of course, uh, on their populations. And that that leads us neatly to our uh, second story this week, which is about one of the uh, recipients of a knighthood in the New Year's honours list, an epidemiologist with a very different view of the efficacy of lockdowns to Anders Tegniel. Do you want to talk briefly about that? Yes, this is the story of Professor John Edmonds, 
who is now um, or shortly will be uh, Professor Sir John Edmonds, as as you put it in the Daily Skeptic, a flip flopping COVID scientist who initially recommended herd immunity. So he was right to start with back when lots of people, uh, including Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, were saying sensible things way back. We're talking in February 2020, uh, but then unfortunately changed his mind uh, and then kept popping up. He's a member of SAGE and he kept popping up uh, in the press, uh, much to the consternation of uh, of the government uh, to push against the government's reluctance to uh, go back to those extreme measures. He kept pushing for longer and tougher lockdowns. And unfortunately, the government has decided that this flip-flopping and this pushing against the government's uh, very sensible resistance or attempt to resist, uh, resist extreme measures, they've decided to knight him and make him a sir. So a reward, yes, yet more reward for bad behaviour and more reward uh, for being wrong um, and for and for failure. I'm not sure you can um, place the blame for this at the door of the government. It's more of a kind of blob decision, I think, than a government decision. Awards um, are coordinated by the Cabinet Office, but um, they're decided on, for the most part, by committees of the great and the good, many of them uh, people who've been honoured already um, uh, within their fields. And um, unless the recommendation is extremely contentious, I think Downing Street is very unlikely to be to be involved and uh, very rarely um, overturns the decisions, the recommendations of these committees, um, uh, which is which is why, I mean, so often, you know, if you look at if you look down the list of the people who have received honours, the vast majority are very much enemies of the present government, and it's always quite perplexing. But I think the, the answer has to be that they're awarded by the blob, not by the government. So perhaps less surprising that the blob has uh, rewarded one of its own in this way. Indeed. The government may have been a bit surprised to hear John Edmonds saying in response to being uh, given this uh, this gong that he was a bit embarrassed by the honour as he was not really one for the spotlight. And uh, this will has come as something of a surprise to Boris Johnson, at least, and Rishi Sunak, of course, who was Chancellor at the time. Uh, as uh, the Mail points out, John Edmonds was frequently headed to the TV studios in a so-called private capacity. Remember, this was a mm. senior member of the government's official emer- SAGE emergency uh, advisory body uh, to make the case against the government's desire uh, for more stringent restrictions. So co- constantly popping up. For someone who's not really one for the spotlight, clearly seeking it out uh, a lot during the pandemic. Uh, in the summer of 2020, uh, he said that a failure to lock down earlier had cost a lot of lives, uh, which I guess is kind of um, a, a odd admission of responsibility, since he, of course, was someone who was at the, at the beginning, before lockdowns, was resisting uh, the idea of lockdowns. Then accused, he accused Boris Johnson of taking a risk by easing restrictions. And then months later, uh, he warned that the UK, this was in as we came towards the second lockdown in November of 2020, he said the UK needed even tougher restrictions to hold off another wave of the virus. And he said in early 2021 that easing the third national lockdown, you remember that's the one that lasted all the way from the beginning of January 2021, right up until the, the end of July. Uh, so the, the entire first half of the year, he said easing that third national lockdown would be a disaster. So this is very much one of the lockdowners. So very regrettable that he is receiving, uh, as you say, probably from the blob, a major award and um, and does just show, I mean, really does just show, I think, what, what the orthodox view is. I mean, we know what it is uh, and that it still uh, very much uh, intends to promote that view and, and reward its own. 
Yeah, and I guess this confirms uh, something we knew already, which is that um, uh, there's no penalty amongst kind of state-approved epidemiologists for getting things wrong. On the contrary, it doesn't really matter how wrong you are, you're still rewarded. Yeah, it doesn't matter how wrong you are um, and how and how uh, way out your predictions of doom are. Is if, you're, if you're on narrative, you'll be rewarded even if you're wrong. And if you're off narrative, you'll be punished and ostracised even if you're right. Yeah. So moving on to a more serious story, um, this is one of the kind of long-running controversies about the COVID vaccines is whether mRNA COVID vaccines can legitimately be described as experimental gene therapies. And I know that um, for, for quite a long period of time, and possibly even to this day, if you describe an mRNA vaccine as a gene therapy, um, your, your, your post can, is likely to be removed from Facebook, Instagram, perhaps less so X these days. Uh, but for a long time, that was designated as um, a textbook misinformation about the COVID vaccines. Um, and it was always disputed, certainly by their champions, um, that these vaccines altered human DNA. But there is um, some new research which throws some light on this question and suggests it may not be such straightforwardly misinformation. Right, yeah. So it's a worrying new research um, that uh, is in a peer-reviewed journal, that's what's significant about it, and it confirms that the RNA from the Pfizer vaccine in particular, which is an mRNA vaccine, does indeed, uh, at least in some cases, integrate into the DNA of the people who receive it. The DNA is the code and that sits inside the nucleus of your cells and tells the cells uh, what they should and shouldn't do. And it was, has always been denied that the COVID vaccines, the mRNA vaccines in particular, will do this. Uh, but it was always suspected that it could happen. That's because there's a well-known biological process called reverse transcription, whereby the cells uh, will sometimes do something they're not they're not really supposed to do, but it sometimes happens because biological uh, organisms uh, don't always follow the rules. And reverse transcribes, that means it reads, uh, rather than reading the DNA and producing RNA, instead does the opposite. It reads the cell uh, accidentally, if you like, reads the RNA that's been put into it from the vaccine and then puts it back uh, and slots it into the DNA in the cell that's doing that, where it then sits and gets integrated into the cell. Uh, it, was, it was always suspected this could happen because it's well known that this is a major way that the genetics of, of populations of organisms uh, actually change um, and evolve by, uh, by integrating viral RNA into DNA. So it was always suspected it could happen. Uh, for some reason, the authorities denied that this um, happened, although they never really looked into it. There was some... Uh, some research from as Igor Chudov, who's written about this, and we've published his piece on the Daily Skeptic, as he points out, it was nearly two years ago uh, that there was first discovered in vitro, it's called, that means in a lab, that this uh, could happen uh, to cells from the uh, from the vaccines. And now, finally, another two years, as we say, later, so this is now uh, three over three years since the vaccines were uh, put out onto the market, some researchers uh, have established uh, that, yes, indeed, this RNA can get integrated into the human DNA. And the reason they found this is because they noticed that some, some long COVID sufferers had the spike protein from the vaccine in their blood, producing it long term. They said they asked the question, well, why is this happening? Why are they producing this? Why do they keep on producing the spike protein 
uh, obviously the, the suggestion is that this is contributing to their long COVID. And so they looked into the DNA in their cells and sure enough found uh, that it was carried on producing the spike protein because the, the, the vaccine had been integrated into their DNA. So all a pretty depressing picture, but as I say, uh, it was all predicted as a possibility, at least way, way back when the, when the vaccines, when genetic vaccines were being uh, developed. There are still questions about how, uh, how prevalent it is, how often it happens um, and how serious it is. But the, the, the question really, I think, Toby, is why is this now only just over, as I said, three years after the vaccines were authorised for, for rolling out to the entire population? We are now finally getting an article in a peer-reviewed journal saying, oh, hang on a minute, this vaccine does does something potentially very dangerous. And uh, we're only now discovering this. This kind of thing should have been discovered way back before, obviously, the vaccines were rolled out. That's why drugs have, especially experimental drugs using new technologies, new genetic technologies in particular, uh, take years to develop and have uh, lots of rigorous uh, safety hoops that they have to jump through to pick up things like this. And so, so the question now is, are the authorities going to take this seriously and look into it properly? Or are they, as they've done with uh, basically almost every other uh, safety signal and problem that's come up with these vaccines that they've obviously backed to the hilt, um, will, will they just brush it under the carpet and just, and just pretend it's not there? Yep, quite worrying. Um, okay, the final story you wanted to talk about this week, Will, which has also done very well on The Daily Skeptic, was a story by Chris Morrison, published on the 28th of December, about a BBC Verify correspondent um, who specialises in climate disinformation, um, enrolling on a six-month course at the Oxford Climate Journalism Network. Uh, So it's essentially a six-month sabbatical uh, from the BBC. We don't know whether it's a paid sabbatical or an unpaid sabbatical. We suspect paid, but we don't know that for sure. Uh, He's enrolling on this climate journalism course. And in a follow-up piece, Chris looked back at previous lecturers and speakers invited to address the students enrolled on this course. And they included a, a professor who seemed to seriously consider as a solution to the spread of climate misinformation and disinformation, the imprisonment of climate skeptics, which is pretty alarming, um, given that this um, journalist works for the BBC and in particular for BBC Verify. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. Um, so if uh, listeners were wondering how the uh, a green, uh, the net zero agenda and climate alarmism agenda is, is pushed, and, uh, and promoted throughout the media, uh, then here is a really excellent example picked up by Chris Morrison, our, our environment correspondent, uh, who has spotted uh, this course set up under Reuters for climate journalism. Uh, and it's, uh, it runs what descri- it describes as an intensive programme for about 100 journalists, or uh, really we would say activists, I think, uh, journalist activists, as Chris puts it, um, around the world. As Chris says they can, participants can expect to be immersed in the c- correct political narrative surrounding climate collapse, the so-called settled science, and the need for extreme net zero measures, uh, whatever the cost. Um, and you've got examples of past essays from uh, the alumni of this of this course, such as uh, titles such as "Journalists Should Help Audiences under- Understand Extreme Weather Even When They Lack Climate Data." 
and to report fully on climate change, journalists need to integrate indigenous knowledge into their coverage. And finally, newsrooms should develop a mental health strategy to help climate journalists cope. So that gives you a bit of a flavour of the kind of things that the journalists who go on this are producing. And they're given examples uh, such as to pick a fruit, such as the mango, and to explain to readers how the, the taste of the mango has deteriorated in recent years, owing, uh, of course, uh, to the, the, the great bogeyman climate change. Uh, Chris points out that this is funded by a, a group uh, of, of various uh, various major funders of the official narrative, uh, including uh, various uh, green billionaires. Uh, so we have, we have the Lords Foundation, uh, the European Climate Fund, backed by Sir Christopher Hone's Children's Investment Fund Foundation and the Knight Foundation. And during uh, the last year, funding of over £1 million was received from the Google News Initiative and Meta Journalism Project. So I guess not, not particularly surprising uh, that this is being, being run. It's uh, the Oxford Climate Journalism Network, so it's all connected to Oxford as well. So it's a, a, good, a good example, I think, of how this, of how, how this uh, propaganda, as we would uh, call it, it is, is cooked up and distributed and how they, how they, they get everyone on board uh, in thinking, how they, how they inform, reinforce the group think uh, yes. on, on these issues. It's depressing because... Actually, if an impartial course on climate journalism was being taught and BBC journalists were taking six-month sabbaticals to go on this course, that could actually be hugely beneficial. I mean, for old-fashioned kind of traits associated with good journalists, like leaving your priors at the door on the way in, um, assessing the truth of different claims based on the evidence being genuinely guided by the science on issues like climate, trying to remain politically impartial and unbiased. I mean, all of those virtues could actually bring an enormous amount to covering the climate. Uh, but instead, um, uh, this is essentially a course in how to propagandize to promote one particular politically contentious point of view about climate change. So it's really the it's it's teaching journalists to do the opposite. Of, of being good journalists and essentially asking them to discard their journalistic principles at the door and just adopt the same techniques as, as climate activists. So pretty depressing. Yeah, yeah, I think you've got it right there. Absolutely. Okay, well, um, well, happy new year. And thank you for telling us about the top stories of the week. Thanks, Toby. Happy new year. So that was Will and Toby. Now back with me and Toby. And let's go to everyone's favourite section. It is Peak Woke. So Toby, so many Peak Wokes we could have this week because there's been a bit of a build-up over Christmas. These Peak Wokes tend to build up. I mean, the Methodist Church deemed the terms husband and wife offensive. There's a little starter for you. What have you got? I've got um, the Aviva boss who was in the headlines a couple of weeks ago for saying that um, she w- she would personally vet any senior white male recruits. <laughs> uh, uh, she's been awarded a damehood in the uh, New Year's honours list, um, which is uh, well, a bit of a surprise to me, but I guess it was all arranged before she embarrassed herself in this way. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that, that was, that was, uh, I mean, 
I've got to, I've gotten to the age, Nick, where I when when the New Year's honors list is published, I kind of run my my eye down the list and think and 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 just and and note all the people um, that I vaguely know um, who've been given honors of various kinds, and I always think kind of like, what have they ever done? to support the government? What have they ever done to help the Conservative body? Aren't the honours, to a certain extent, supposed to be a reward for loyalty to, you know, whoever's in charge? That's definitely how, you know, the other side plays them. And I can't, increasingly kind of can't believe that people like her uh, are being being made dames, you know, and nothing, nothing for me, Nick. The the cupboard is bad. It's insane. Liz Truss could have put you on her list because didn't she recommend you run for London mayor? I mean, why are you not on Liz Truss's yeah, list? Yeah, yeah, just uh, I think she, I think she had a fairly limited number of names she was able to put forward. I was delighted to see um, uh, two of her peers, um, their names finally being published. Um, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I was I was disappointed that um, the Aviva lady um, <laughs> has been made a dame. Yeah, shocking. Here's another one for you. USA Boxing to allow transgender women, aka men, to compete against female boxers under certain conditions from 2024 after introducing new policy. They have to meet various conditions in terms of their, uh, they have to have a hormone levels documented for a minimum of four years following surgery, quarterly hormone testing, blah, blah, blah. But none of that will make any difference because you've already developed the upper body strength. You've already developed as a man and then you're just switching. You'll always have an unfair advantage. We've seen Fallon Fox breaking orbital bones in the MMA and it'll just be horrendous if this happens in boxing. I mean, imagine it's just going to be just like like watching domestic violence as a sport. It's just going to be men, although of course that goes both ways, but it's going to be men beating up women as a sport. I mean, women have to boycott this one for their safety, two for solidarity. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Um, I thought things were going the other way um, and that more and more sporting associations were saying that uh, trans women can't compete against biological women, but perhaps that's only in the UK on Turf Island. Um, yeah, the US seemed behind on all of this. Yeah. Anyway, do you want to do one? I've got more, but let's do one each. Well, there was, um, there was uh, a, a report into woke bias um, at the BBC and a complaint has been made and it was compiled by, I think, the... Um, Common Sense Society, um, the Campaign for Common Sense, um, a review of the BBC's output, um, uh, and uh, so, and a, a great example of this over Christmas was the latest Agatha Christie thriller, Murder Is Easy. Um, so um, the people who adapted that for the BBC added some scenes um, to turn it into an allegory um, against colonialism. Um, so uh, that was uh, pretty egregious, but uh, I guess no real surprise there. Yeah, I heard about that one. Um, here's another one then. Green Day, the band Green Day, who are a very good band, actually. They are, they're an excellent band from back in my sort of era, but they are, of course, now woke, and they've altered the lyrics to American Idiot to say, I'm not part of the MAGA agenda. So they've had a an attack on Trump in their New Year's Eve performance. And it's just so easy and pathetic, isn't it? It's a sort of punkish band. They're obviously influenced by The Clash and stiff little fingers and bands like this. And But now they're just doing the most easy, low-hanging fruit, the safest thing you can do in the music industry of attacking Donald Trump. And to be fair to John Lydon, he was, of the Sex Pistols, he was actually consistent in his punk ethos by supporting Brexit and supporting Trump, which is a far more punk thing to do, whereas these other bands retain the sort of music, musicality and aesthetics of punk while not being punk at all in spirit. 
Yeah, um, disappointing. I always quite like Green Day, um, but yeah, they're dead to me now, Nick. Um, <laughs> did, uh, did you see um, Stuart Lee's um, uh, column in the his sort of twenty twenty four column? Um, <laughs> it was really extraordinary. Uh, his column in the in the Observer uh, on Sunday. Did he do his list of people who he condemned? Because he condemned all GB news presenters on a previous list. Oh, so I, I was sort of condemned yeah, de facto. I, don't I don't think it included um he, he sort of one of the things he looks forward to in 2024 is um uh, a kind of um he has this this lord of the rings fantasy in which britain uh, is going to be saved from the tories by an unlikely band of ill-matched heroes and then he nominates um who the who the kind of proxies are in his fellowship of the ring so jolian morm is gandalf um, the four hapless hobbits are led by donkeys. Uh, Gimli the dwarf is Peter Stefanovic, a kind of anti-Tory lawyer. Um, Aragon is Marina Perkis, who he, who he <laughs> describes as a devastatingly articulate daytime TV wag. And Legolas is Carol Vorderman, um, <laughs> which is just just bizarre um and i i don't think it was um you know i don't think he was sending himself up or sending up people who overvalue carol vorderman and marina perkis and jolian morn he really does seem to think that these are you know the heroes that are going to save britain from the evil tories uh it was just he's absolutely He's so part of the normie cringe establishment now, isn't he, Stuart Lee? It's so disappointing. Carol Vorderman. I mean, imagine Stuart Lee praising Carol Vorderman or Marina Perkins. You can easily imagine him slamming these type of people because they're on his side and he's got part of the... And Jolian Moore. How is he Gandalf, by the way? Gandalf has a, a staff for a start, not a baseball bat, and he wouldn't beat up a fox and kill a fox, would he? <laughs> I mean, he's more like Gimli in that way or something, but he's probably more like an orc, isn't he? He is more like an think orc, about it. Yeah. Who would have a base? Who would who would beat a fox death with a bat? An orc. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's like an orc. <laughs> That's right. It's like uh, also. I mean, you know. <sighs> Uh, Stop appropriating our literature as well. That's our literature. Yeah, I mean that—that's essentially a kind of. And he's an ANCAP. A, he's a kind of uh, anarcho-capitalist, wasn't he? Uh, Pipe-smoking anarcho-capitalist Tolkien. Yeah, it was, it's it's a, it's essentially a conservative fable, like Watership Down. Um, uh, so yeah, it seems particularly ignorant of uh, Lee to try and appropriate it um, for his own twisted progressive ends. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe there was an element of self-satire there that I'm just missing. I don't know his work well enough. I'm not an avid reader of his Observer column, but um, it just seemed extraordinary. I doubt it too. I doubt it because his recent columns have read like that, but you go, actually, he does mean like the one where he said Anton Deck was sort of apologists for, for, for the far right because they'd had Nigel Farage on and they'd been making quips about him on the jungle. And he's so absurd. The article, you like this, would be a good parody of Stuart Lee, but actually, he does seem to be just one. Yeah, I mean, it's it, very it, sad. one of the differences between you know um, woke comedians and anti woke comedians is, you know, predictably, the woke comedians don't seem to possess the facility for self satire. There is no kind of knowing distance between their comic persona and you know themselves it's like uh like dave Chappelle is kind of constantly referring to the fact in a kind of funny way that he's become this kind of uh you know conservative culture warrior um and you know making jokes about it and uh but you can't imagine Stuart lee making jokes about the fact that he's become a kind of 
icon of the kind of woke movement. No, exactly. He did constantly talk about the character Stuart Lee being distinct from the person. That seemed to be mainly a vehicle to have a go at other comedians and not be accountable for it. You know, he could have a go at Russell uh, Howard or something like that by saying that's the character Stuart Lee, but he never he never differentiates politically. Those are definitely his views. And there is an interesting thing that Gervais maybe borrowed a little bit uh, the stand-up technique of Stuart Lee. I even noticed on some of those Gervais jokes I watched, I was like, oh, that's a little bit Stuart Lee, the way he's done that act out and that accent. And so there's an interesting thing there that Stuart Lee is technically a great comedian with horrific views, and Gervais is technically a bad stand-up with the right views. Isn't vaguely interesting to me? Yeah, I I can recognise that, grudgingly, that Stuart Lee is... uh, His craft is is impressive, uh, better than than Ricky Gervais's. Um, But I can't imagine Stuart Lee being as good a host of an awards ceremony as Ricky Gervais. Can you? I mean, that seems to be what no. Ricky Gervais absolutely excels at. Um, True. He was great at that. Yeah, but when she, Stuart Lee had this career pause, and then one of the things that brought him back, this was a while ago, sort of 2004, was Ricky Gervais giving him a, a, a glowing quote. And, he, and Lee was watching Ricky Gervais doing really well and going, hang on, he's stolen my style, yet he's doing really well. So his resentment of that is part of what brought him back into stand-up. And then he became massive in stand-up. So, and then to go full circle, he ended up saying that Gervais should kill himself in a recent article, the guy that had given him this great quote and and resurrected his career in a sort of fit of ungratefulness, but in gratitude. So they're sort of tied together in strange ways, but yeah, you're right. Gervais would be much better at an award ceremony, a brilliant actor in the office, as I've said, and writer just as a stand-up Lee is better, but with terrible views. Hmm. And it, we, right. we need to come up with another name for we, we need to come up with a name for comedians who think they are kind of iconic countercultural, you know, masters of their craft, uh, uh, when in fact the material they produce, their views are anything but countercultural. Um, they're actually completely aligned with the most powerful people in our culture it's odd that 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 they they can never see that they think of themselves as kind of anti-establishment rebels even though they are the mouthpieces of the establishment it's true of private eye we've discussed it before it's what's happened to ian hislop but we need to come up with a name for these people i have a name oh do you okay yeah, yeah, I, I call them regime comedians. Regime comedians, and, that's pretty and good. And I yeah. believe I coined that, but I heard Graham Linehan recently using it and saying I, I use the phrase regime comedians. And I was thinking, I think I coined regime comedians because I never heard anyone say it, but maybe Linehan coined it or maybe we both coined it or maybe someone else coined mm. it. I sort of believe I came up with it, but maybe I didn't. No, that's quite but good. He also uses yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've used it in articles for the Daily Skeptic. Regime comedians, that's what they are. And Stuart Lee, you almost don't want to say it about Stuart Lee because he's almost like in sort of league of his own, but certainly all the the Kumars and all those lot are definitely regime comedians. Surely you could perhaps surely is the king of the regime comedians, arguably. You feel it's he's maybe deserves a separate title, but yeah, that's basically what they are. All right. There's a strange pause there, but you just accepted <laughs> accepted the logic of my argument. That is pretty much the show, I suppose. Let's just quickly review the reviews and see what we've got. Following the Christmas period, we had a little break, our first ever break, actually. And um, someone here says, brilliant. Toby and Nick bring out the best in each other. Such great conversations. Oh, thank you very much. That was posted on Christmas Day, so I'm glad you've got your priorities right. Um, someone saying, social media. Toby, in response to your tweet asking for financial help, I asked where one could donate to the Daily Weekly Skeptic, but you didn't, re- but didn't receive a response. I know you already work 24-7, so perhaps it's worthwhile to get some social media operators 
i.e. Russian bots, your kids. What's that all about, Toby? I don't know. Where did he where did he post this request for info? I mean it's on the uh, I mean if you if you if you want if you email me at um the daily skeptic uh at gmail.com um and you want to donate directly to um the weekly skeptic then i can tell you how to do that and i can also tell you how to donate directly to the daily skeptic uh, two different bank accounts um but if you want to donate to the daily skeptic just go on the website and click on the donate button yeah okay and someone else has put tour de force i think they mean the live show when you come into the north perhaps leeds manchester hopefully one day and then I might have read this one already. Did I already read the one that said I came alive with the live audience? That's I can't remember if I've read that one. Uh, that was a great review of the live podcast. I think I read it maybe. Another person saying we should get out our, our new uh, paywall so they can pay us, which is, which hopefully we will launch soon, launching our new business soon. Just got to sort the website, basically. Yeah. There was a delay because our web guy was ill and I was ill and it was Christmas. But that will be coming soon. Uh, for now, if you want to go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon, you can help me out on there. Someone just bought me a huge amount of coffees. The, the most, I think it was 20 coffees. Incredible. I'll reply to that person soon. Thank you very much. So buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon to help me out. And Toby, what do you want to plug anything? Yeah, well, we, I think we're going we're gonna to have our next live show at the Hippodrome in the downstairs bar, Lola's, uh, in February. Um, so we're just nailing down the date. But um, it'll be a Monday, um, and as soon as we've done that, we'll 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 tell you how you can buy tickets to that show. Uh, last one sold out. This one probably will too. Uh, we haven't discussed whether we're going to do a dinner or drinks afterwards. Anyway, well, to be confirmed or to be continued. Yes, next one in February because last one was very successful. Let's see. Maybe we'll do six this year. We don't know. Let's see what happens. See if I survive. I've got all my health concerns. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm going to go back to worrying about that now. <laughs> Probably shouldn't go into so much detail about it on the podcast, but it's too late for that. Uh, check out my other podcast, The Current Thing. I just did an interview on there, actually, talking about me going into too much information. Someone interviewed me for a change, and that's doing really well. That was really interesting, hopefully. Well, I hope it was interesting, interesting for me because I was talking about myself, my favorite topic. But uh, check that out on The Current Thing. I'll be, I've got a new episode coming out next week. So I think that's pretty much it. Until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.